Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. This next episode is for all those acquisition professionals out there who are interested in the new direction of Air Force contracting. We are fortunate to sit down with Major General Cameron Holt, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting, Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. Your Air Force contracting leader discusses the importance of being a critical thinker and not accepting the status quo. His focus is on the why of what we do, not just contracting for contracting's sake. This leads to mission-focused business leaders and the introduction of General Holt's Air Force contracting flight plan. I hope you enjoy his straightforward point of view and fresh perspective on what mission-focused business leaders can do to change the acquisition game. Welcome, Major General Cameron Holt, to the podcast. Um, We're glad to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Um, So you've been described as an idea man and a big picture thinker. What in your life has helped you develop this way of thinking? Well, first of all, whoever said that that way, they're very sweet to say it that way. There's lots of ways you could look at that. Uh, Truthfully, it's really my curse. Um, I just, I can't turn it off. Uh, Everywhere I go, you know, I I go to a restaurant and I'm thinking, how could you do this better? Or I pull (laughs) into a gas station and I'm thinking, why do we even, why do they even have this uh, uh, being done that way? In Air Force contracting, I've approached um, every problem that, uh, every mission problem that I've seen the same way. I'm also really horrible at staying in my lane. Uh, There's people, my whole career have urged me to stay in my lane, that lane being contracting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'll tell you, truthfully, I've always ignored them. And it's made a big difference for me. Um, I am a strong believer that we should not be staying in our lane, that we as airmen, um, we, we are ingrained in our DNA in Air Force heritage with a critical thinking mind. In fact, I'd rather think of, of my, my uh, curse as uh, critical thinking, but I understand it may just be insanity. I, <laughs> I get it. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people that work closely with me may, may uh, say that, nope, it's insanity, definitely. <laughs> But in our Air Force heritage, if, if you want to think about some of the early airmen, uh, Billy Mitchell and Claire Chenault, not that I would ever put myself on par with those, those uh, folks, but they really set that heritage for us. They set a, a tradition of not just accepting uh, something at face value, to question everything, not in a way that's disrespectful. And, you know, obviously Billy Mitchell was court-martialed for insubordination because he wouldn't shut up. But actually, the things he wouldn't shut up about actually made the United States Navy much better and more able to set aside the battleship as the center of sea power, for example, uh, in favor of an aircraft carrier. Um, And Claire Chenault, in his example, you know, many of us have seen the pictures of him as a general officer in the Air Force, you know, smiling broadly. But the fact of the matter is that the peacetime Air Force threw him out as a captain. Uh, because he wouldn't shut up. He found better ways to do things, and he wouldn't shut up about it. And, and, and so I will tell you, some days I'm really curious as to why the Air Force has kept me as long as they have. 
Um, but I am, uh, I feel quite blessed to have been in the Air Force, and I really connect with that heritage as airmen and being critical thinkers. Again, not, not in a way that's, that's uh, bad manners or disrespectful, but in a way that just doesn't accept status quo, doesn't accept the doctrine, doesn't accept the conventional way of thinking, right. and thinks about the whole problem and applies our expertise uh, to that mission. No, that's important. And as contracting folks, we have to be able to critically think because we're constantly being asked to do things differently or brought issues from the program office, and we have to be able to support them in doing that. And that takes critical thinking to do that. Yeah, I'll give you another example that really has stuck with me my whole career. And that is a more recent example. After the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union obviously was defeated. And there were some talks, and I don't remember specifically what those talks were, but between the airmen of the former Soviet Union and the Air Force. And one of the issues that came up was uh, the Soviet airmen saying, yes, we did try to keep up with the United States Air Force and all of its capabilities. But there were two capabilities they mentioned that they, although they would try repeatedly to keep up with it, they could never reproduce it. Uh, one was aerial refueling, which is very interesting that they would say that. Mm -hmm. uh, the second was the professionalism of our NCO Corps. And that has always stuck with me. Why would that be something that they'd be so interested in emulating? And the reason is because as airmen, we are critical thinkers. Right. And in fact, our senior NCOs in the absence of instructions will get the job done. Well, over the last year, there's been a focus on agility and government acquisition. Can you speak to why the focus on agility and why it's so important? Sure. Um, first off, the word agility, um, all of these words are buzzwords. I, I've never really connected with buzzwords my whole career. I didn't in business school. I don't now. The reason I don't, uh, I think they get to be a little bit hackneyed is that people see that word agility and it doesn't mean anything to them. You know, they've heard this their whole career. Go faster, mm -hmm. be better, be smarter, more responsive. Uh, I don't think that what, what really strikes me as missing in that is the why. And the, the why for me, I've, uh, as I've said before, I, I've always had to know why it is that we need to do something. Yes. And in fact, that, that notion that is described by that word agility is not just um, a nice to have anymore. It's an imperative. And for me, it's all about my kids. I see a future where I could leave them with a disadvantage in the world militarily against our near peer competitors. And I, for one with the few years that I have remaining in uniform, want to do everything within my power to lead an effort to change that game in real ways in our advantage. I would love it if I could leave my children with a two-generation advantage over anything that they face. And frankly, I think we have to do that. Uh, and the Air Force more than most. Um, what, I'm, what I'm about to tell you is maybe it, it, it can sound arrogant. And if it does, I apologize. However, uh, when the Chinese and the Russians think about uh, the calculation for going to war with the United States, I think the Air Force's capabilities offer much greater deterrent value uh, than a lot of the other capabilities amongst the joint force. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the Chinese worry a lot about uh, the army landing on its shores to conduct a ground war in Asia. Um, I think they worry a little bit more about the Navy uh, but again, the Navy's ability to project power inland is limited. 
uh, although considerable, and they have uh, obviously great capabilities that they can move around the world uh, faster than we can. But I do think they worry about the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I think they worry about a force that can act with impunity within its borders without its permission or knowledge in airspace or cyberspace. And frankly, that's what I want to spend the rest of my time doing from, from a contracting perspective is seeing if I can lead our career field to be disruptive, to think of ways to push the acquisition business uh, to our advantage uh, and not accept the conventional wisdom that because they're not a democracy, that they have an insurmountable advantage over us. I, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, and so that notion of agility, it's required. It's not just a, a want to. Um, I think Secretary Mattis is, uh, gave us a great legacy in the national defense strategy that he left us with. And when I look at that national defense strategy, and I've, led a, I've read a lot of strategy documents in my mm -hmm. time, that's the most honest strategy document I've ever read. It doesn't just tell us what we're good at. It tells us what we're not. And it tells us areas where we need to pay attention as we re-enter uh, a world where peer competition and great power competition is a real possibility. Mm -hmm. And when I read that national defense strategy, to me, it may sound egocentric, but to me, it's all about acquisition. It's not about the Air Force we have necessarily right now. It's about the Air Force we're going to have. Mm -hmm. And if we get this right in acquisition, uh, we can disrupt the, uh, the current course and we can gain a two-generation advantage. I look at contracting as a very key game changer in that regard, and I'll tell you why. Um, again, it may sound arrogant, but I believe that contracting in the Air Force what our people know, our, the expertise that our people bring to the team, we know more about the details of how to turn a dollar into fly fight win than any other function out there. Mm -hmm. And so instead of contracting, sitting on the sidelines as a business advisor, I want us to become more knowledgeable uh, about the missions that we create or that we support. I want us to understand the national defense strategy. I want us to understand the why behind mm -hmm. contracting. We don't do contracting for contracting's sake in the United States Air Force. Right. We do contracting for fly, fight, win. We need to put that first. And then we apply our business acumen and our knowledge of government contracting and of, uh, of corporate finance uh, and of industry to bend and, and break processes, to replace processes, so that we get to the results that, that the warfighter requires. And I think we're very well positioned to be business leaders instead of business advisors. Well, I'm gonna encourage all the contracting folks out there to go out and, and if they haven't already, read the National Defense Strategy um, and go and, and pull out some of those things that uh, General Holt mentioned. We, we put the link in our, in our show notes for the first episode, but I'll make sure I do that for this episode as well um, so people can go out and, and take a look at it. The Air Force contracting flight plan is being released to the workforce. It was developed around mission-focused business leadership. Can you explain what that is and how the contracting officers, buyers, price analysts, and procurement analysts listening can be mission-focused business leaders? Yeah, absolutely. And this really goes back to what I just talked about with respect to what is a mission-focused business leader. And if you take it in the two parts, mission-focused and business leader, Mission focus is 
basically a recognition that we don't just do contracting for contracting's sake, but we do it to perform a mission. In the, in the biggest picture, we obviously do this in support of the joint force, but it's about fly, fight, win in airspace and cyberspace. But airmen at every level support a mission that, that feeds into that fly, fight, and win. So even if you're a two-striper at a base contracting office and you're supporting civil engineering, Civil engineering is supporting the infrastructure of that base, and those bases are the center of our power projection. And so uh, mission focus can happen at any level. Uh, as far as being a business leader, that's really a, a, a way of changing up our view from business advisors to business leaders. I've always hated the term business advisor. I've heard it my whole career. And the imagery that comes to my mind when I, when I hear that is, I don't know if you've seen the cartoon Peanuts, mm -hmm. but when Lucy is in her little booth that says five cents for advice, it's as if our contracting experts are sitting on the sidelines waiting for somebody to happen by with a contracting question if, if they even know that it is. And that has not been my experience about who we are. We're folks that uh, are experts in contracting, which is our primary weapon system that we apply to the Air Force problem. Uh, and we're students of our customers' missions or our mission partners' missions. Uh, and, that's, and that's what mission-focused business leadership is. Now, in terms of the flight plan, it is a strategic plan. That's absolutely true. Um, I'm unapologetic about that. I think we need one. I think we need to write one down. Mm -hmm. uh, it does have lines of effort. It has objectives. It has key results mm -hmm. uh, for calendar year 19. Line of, line of effort one is building mission-focused business leaders, and that's about the workforce development bit because we do have to start thinking about training and building our workforce uh, in a new way, in a way that is intentional about building both of those pieces, mission focus and business leadership, mm -hmm. all the way up and down the chain. Line of effort two is tools, not rules. And I can't take credit for that term uh, I actually got that from SpaceX, so uh, I don't know if they'll come sue me or what, but, um, but, it, but it was Grant, Gwen Shotwell uh, that talked about that, and I, it's, uh, it's always stuck with me. We need to reduce the amount of rules that don't make sense uh, to be mandatory, to uh, free up our people's judgment and thinking and critical thinking skills on approaching new problems in new ways. Mm -hmm. um, and the tools piece of this, I think we have not given our folks all of the tools that they need to do their job over time. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of, of, of great examples out there where these tools are starting to, to exist. And so now this, it's time for us to bring together the community and bring down the level of mandatory rules while we bring up the tools that people have to do their jobs and then we set them loose to do it. Line of effort three is called owning the high ground and it's about optimizing the acquisition enterprise. Uh, and it's really about efficiency, effectiveness, and experimentation. Uh, and we can get into more of that later. Yeah. Line of effort four is about leading the joint contracting, contingency contracting force. Uh, it is, there's no question that the Air Force brings the, by far the largest capacity in contingency contracting. We have a very proud heritage of contingency contracting in wartime settings. That's been ne never more important than it is right now um, with the scenarios we may face in the world. But the Air Force has not been as strong, certainly not as strong as, as the Army has been historically in the command and control of contracting in joint settings. 
And it's time that we, we, uh, we uh, improved our ability to do that command and control. So yes, it's a, that flight plan that we're going to write down and we're going to actually ask teams to get together across the uh, Air Force uh, contracting enterprise and actually start cooperating rather than operating as stovepipes, actually cooperating against some key results that we want to go after in these lines of effort as we make progress together. But beyond the strategic plan, beyond it being a flight plan, I really want people to think more about it than that. I actually want our people to see this as more of a call to action. I, I want them to understand this as an invitation to join me as one, of, uh, uh, as one Air Force contracting team that's intent on winning, that looks at this peer competition fight that we're in very seriously. It may sound depressing to say this, but I'm a big fan of history, and particularly military history, and the Air Force has afforded me a lot of opportunities, uh, educational opportunities to think about this. And I'm certainly not um, slighting the wars that we have found ourselves in almost constantly since 1991. In fact, our enemies have been observing the American way of war since then and playing to our weaknesses. Uh, and any loss of life worldwide uh, that may go on is horrible. But what I will say is that from a great power competition or a great power warfare uh, perspective, the United States is in a period that I would call the interwar years right now. And if you look back through history, what a nation does in the interwar years matters a whole lot for when, God forbid, another war should break out. And so I'm wondering if, as an Air Force contracting family, if we can get uh, together around one strategic plan and make progress in mission-focused business leadership for the right reasons, if we can change the equation in very key ways that give Air Force acquisition and our PEOs out there and our wing commanders and our major command commanders um, a much different set of tools uh, and much more responsiveness to change the equation. So our dollars go farther and our schedules get uh, much faster. Well, I think it's important you talked about the why and kind of where those lines of effort were generated from. Um, can you talk about a couple of key results from those different lines of effort that you expect to come out of each one of them? Yeah, sure. Let me first by saying that, you know, the, the ink is almost dry on this plan. Um, and we are going to get it out to everybody. And so I would encourage everybody to read the whole thing. I would also encourage people to raise their hand if they're interested in participating on one of these teams um, and get off the sidelines and get after it. Um, and I don't care what rank level, and I don't care where, where they are in Air Force contracting. Uh, we've got about 8,000 people uh, across the enterprise and the more people that we have in, involved and invested in getting after these results, the easier it will be to get there. My perception is we've been working very hard, but in stovepipes. And as we start to cooperate uh, across a number of these areas, my belief is that the workload associated with, with it will actually go down. So as, you, as you've asked me to, let me highlight a couple of objectives and key results in each of the, the lines of effort. In line of effort one, uh, again, entitled Building Mission-Focused Business Leaders, this is really about workforce development. Uh, and in objective two, 
uh, in that line of effort is reimagine training and culture from initial skills all the way through the executive level. And key result number one is to draft a new workforce development guide. And so for the first time in a very long time, our community is actually going to write it down. We're actually going to write down not only just a career uh, pyramid, as, as people have, may have seen in the past, but what can you expect if you're entering Air Force contracting? What kind of training and education and experience do we value? How do we see warranting? How do we see uh, breadth and depth of experience? And how do we approach education and training? Uh, and as we write all that down, I think it's going to serve two purposes. Actually, maybe three. The first purpose is to fully define what we mean by mission-focused business leaders. Because if we're going to after actually get after building them, we're going to have to really think through what knowledge, skills, and abilities as you go up that career pyramid are we intent going to be intentionally building into our people mm -hmm. uh, so that we have mission-focused business leaders, so that we realize that. Another thing, uh, another use for that plan is going to be to attract the best talent out there. Uh, you know, I, I look at the uh, mission that we support uh, and the business decisions that we're able to make at such young ages, uh, relatively, compared to industry. And I've always asked myself the question, why don't we go to these master's degree universities and, and, and bachelor's degree programs, and why don't we put a, a workforce development plan in front of uh, a potential uh, candidate and ask them to think about it and say, look, you can go work for Procter & Gamble and you can go sell toothpaste. You can do that. Or you can go do this fly, fight, win thing. And I, for one, want them to be able to see uh, in a guide uh, what we plan for their future so that they can make a better decision about where they would, where they would like to serve. And I think the Air, that Air Force contracting will compare favorably to about any other uh, business opportunity out there. So the last purpose I think that, that will be served by this workforce development guide is it will allow uh, our folks to make intentional decisions about their own career. And, you know, I've seen out at many places where there's missed expectations, where people come into our career field, and let's say they show up at Dias Air Force Base, somewhere where workforce development and continuous learning and professional development is not discussed in the hallway. And mm -hmm. the mission of the base is not contracting, like it might be at Wright-Patterson or Robbins or Hill. The mission of the base is something entirely different. And whether they actually even know how to build their depth and breadth to be competitive, not only within the Air Force, but across the services and the federal agencies as a government contracting professional uh, is a mystery to them. And I want to provide real information to every man, woman, and child in Air Force contracting so that they can get together with their families and have conversations well ahead of time about what their career aspirations are and if they do need to develop breadth beyond uh, what one location might be able to offer them, mm -hmm. uh, they can have that uh, expectation and that discussion early on so that they, uh, they can plan for their own future. Um, let me move on to uh, line of effort, too. I could talk yeah. all day about, about some of these objectives right. and key results. But let me talk about, in tools, not rules, I want to talk about objective two and objective three uh, because they actually work together. 
So objective two is to eliminate all mandatory procedures below the Air Force level and flatten and align contractual authority. So we're actually already started that process through something we call Operation Clean Sweep, uh, where we have a number of people participating in that across the Air Force. But we're going to bring more structure and depth and, and, um, and progress to that team uh, as we, as we uh, take that on. Objective three is to enhance the instructional guidance. So if you take those together, what you'll actually have is a reduction in the rules, but also an increase in, the, in our ability to share best practices and share procedures with each other, not mandatory. But that, I think, is a, a very important missing ingredient that, that we had in the 1990s, which is when I would argue was the last real time we had this same kind of environment where uh, we were in a, a, a period of deregulation and pushing authorities down. The mistake I think we made the last time the pendulum swung in that direction, mm -hmm. we got rid of all the rules. We did that successfully. In fact, I remember very clearly the measure of merit for reducing the Air Force FAR supplement was the number of pages. No mention of what the content of those pages were. And I thought that was really interesting. I'd like to take a better take at that this time because what happened then was when we got rid of all the rules, young folks coming out of high school, they didn't know what step two looked like anymore mm -hmm. because they were relying on those rules to help them with procedures. Right. We grew back the mandatory procedures over time and then some. And now we're at the place where, you know, this contracting officer from Georgia can't explain to anybody in Air Force contracting how they operate together. And if I, can't un if I can't explain it to everybody and I'm the head of contracting, well, we're just going to have to delete them <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because I'm not going to be able to explain it. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten too fancy with the rules. But as we remove the rules, we also need to in improve our instructional guidance and our ability to get to it. And so within Objective 3 in Enhancing Instructional Guidance, you have t two uh, key results, key result number three and key result number four, one of those key results is to evaluate the tools that we have across the Air Force. And the other one is to recommend and create tools for implementation. I think what you're going to see when we get the ink dry on the final, uh, final plan, we'll probably combine those into one key result, which is a tools roadmap. So just as the rules are important, the tools that we have available to us in, in the Air Force is really important as well. And we have a ton of tools out there in different places in the in Air Force contracting that no one else in Air Force contracting knows about. It's very stovepiped. And I think we have an opportunity to start to look at that uh, as a team and get the best tools out uh, that we can given, given the amount of money that we might have to spend on it. So if you look at those two objectives and the examples in the key results that I've given, my belief is that that by itself will speed the boat up without sacrificing the quality of contracting that we do. So if I moved on to LOE number three, that's entitled Owning the High Ground, Optimizing the Acquisition Enterprise. There's three objectives, and they're, they're very simple. It's efficiency, effectiveness, and experimentation. What I'd like to highlight for everybody right now that may not be self-explanatory as you, as you look at the actual wording of the plan is that last objective, experimentation. 
So right now, you see in the Air Force lots of experimentation in acquisition and in contracting. And, it's, and it comes in these, in these small organizations I call the cool kids. And so you've seen it, AFWorks, SoftWorks, um, AustinWorks, uh, CyberWorks, uh, you know, uh, Kessel Run, there's DIU, there's so many of these cool kids organizations out there. And, uh, you know, I don't say that in a disparaging way. We, we need those opportunities to innovate. They're very important. But here's what bothers me about them. It, it is innovating around the system innovating around our main workforce. And the, and the stark reality is we are not going to beat China and Russia with just cool kids organizations. You can pull any group of people out of a main workforce, give them all the access to authority, all the money, all the support that they need, all the decision-making and tools that they could, they could ask for, and they will be successful, and they will drive innovation for you. I'm convinced of that. But I have a real heart for the main body of the workforce as well. And so this team, this experimentation team, we're going to intentionally pull together a team of all those cool kid organizations. And we're going to ask them to approach something with, very, with, with great humility. And that is, instead of us just innovating around, I would like to innovate through mm-hmm. our main workforce. And I think that those cool kids have a responsibility to the main workforce. As they come up with innovations that don't work, that's fine. Uh, We'll take the blame as senior leaders and let them continue. But as they come across innovations that are actually very helpful, I want them to be intentional about driving those uh, lessons learned back into tools, not rules, and back into building mission-focused business leaders so that we can actually get the best uh, practices out to the main workforce. Mm-hmm. Because I will tell you this, if we can make that, that uh, little old lady that's been with us for 32 years in the back row of some contracting squadron, if we can make her the cool kid, we will beat China and Russia. Right. I have no doubt in my mind. And so I want to use that experimentation layer, but I don't want to use it in isolation. I want to actually have a closed loop back to the main workforce. So lastly, I'll point out line of, line of effort four uh, in these objectives in the wartime contracting area that really, truthfully, FICA is, is the lead innovator in this. Um, I act as kind of a, an enabler or a supporter of FICA. They have the operational execution responsibility. Uh, as the functional area manager for the Air Force, though, however, I, I do have uh, some ability to influence their success here. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where they take us. Uh, I'm going to highlight uh, objective number three. And, that, and, and the name of that is integration, enhance contracting command and control as a warfighting capability. AFICA has made great strides in this, and AQC has as well. We, there is no doubt, as I said earlier, that Air Force contracting is the predominant uh, contingency contracting force in the department. And we are learning rapidly on how to do command and control of contracting in a very fluid way um, and in a very expeditionary way uh, that's very responsive and pays attention to the operational art of timing and tempo. 
Part of that effort, though, involves us looking at contracting as an actual warfighting capability with effects of its own, operational effects, uh, economic effects, yes, logistics effects. But looking at those effects through the entire spectrum of conflict in our war plans to begin with, at the very beginning. Um, I'm happy to tell you that in the PACOM plans, for example, the Air Force contracting is the lead for the joint force uh, in those PACOM scenarios. And it is the first time in my career uh, that Air Force contracting has actually been fully embedded and integrated into the war planning effort from the very get-go. Uh, and not being an afterthought after um, the operation unfolds. And I can tell you in those Pacific scenarios where time and distance is a great tyranny and, and will be a, a, a very severe source of fog and friction, particularly for logistics, contingency contracting at the tip of the spear, exploiting forward um, vendor bases and, and opportunities for logistics that uh, conserve risk against uh, strategic airlift and other other logistics methods. I think that those um, those capabilities offer a lot to those war plans. So as we look at that across the globe and in all of the geographic uh, combatant commands, I'm counting on the Air Force to be able to exercise command and control rapidly across the spectrum of conflict. The Army is the lead in most combatant commands but I do expect the Air Force to have that capability to lead at any time that we need to. Uh, we, we also have some great examples of uh, defense support of civil agencies in real world that we have uh, learned from, as well as uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations real world that the Air Force um, has provided a lot of leadership uh, in those environments. But this line of effort and that objective in particular will bring this to a whole nother level across Air Force contracting, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, I appreciate you going into different key results of those, um, the four different lines of effort. As you said, it's a strategic plan, but I think that's very important in helping the folks out there understand, you know, what, is, what does this mean to me, and what, what should I do with it next? Um, and so that goes um, to my next question. So, so for the folks that are out there listening today, once they read the flight plan and digest the direction you want to take Air Force contracting, what are your suggestions for the next steps that they should take? Well, the first message I would give to them is we are embarking in a whole new way of thinking about Air Force contracting and what we bring to the fight, what we bring to the acquisition team. And particularly in line of effort one, where we talk about building mission-focused business leaders, everybody needs to hear me say, that's not going to be quick. I'm going to be asking the Air Force to invest in our contracting workforce. There's a, there, there's a lot to get done in training. There's a lot to get done in the area of compensation. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to unfold as we get more intentional about developing those knowledge, skills, and abilities all the way up the chain. But what I would ask folks to do first is don't wait on me. Raise the expectations for each other right now. Whether you're a contracting manager at a base or, or at Wright Pat or Hill or Robbins, understand that even if you may not be a contracting officer yet, that role of a contracting manager is really important. 
It is not an administrative role. Mm -hmm. I fully expect our contract managers to be the experts in their contracts, not the contracting officer. I fully expect our contract managers to be the experts in their mission partner's mission and that requirement. Uh, And as they bring and craft a contracting solution around that requirement, I fully expect there to be healthy tension between that contract manager and a contracting officer. I view the contracting officer as a, as a pivotal role as well. A contracting officer may not be the expert in every contract under them, but they are the expert in contracting. And so when a contracting officer uh, reviews the product of a contract manager, it's absolutely critical that they use that as an opportunity to teach. If the contracting officer doesn't give the red pen treatment, so to speak, to our contract managers, but rather they succumb to the pressure of time and they just pass the file along, I will tell you right now, there is, if, if we have a breakdown between those two roles, there is nothing I can do to help Air Force contracting. If those two roles are right, if we get that right and there is that healthy tension there to get the mission done for the right reason, There is nothing I can do to screw up Air Force contracting. So what I would ask people to do, and I I include pricers in this as well, but what I would ask people to do is get to be an expert in your primary weapon system, which is contracting. Don't let anybody stop you from doing it. If you want to know how to do another transaction, go look it up. Mm -hmm. Go get all the information you can find on it. Don't wait for me to send you to DAU or to come up with some snazzy course. Right you can actually go out there and become the Air Force's expert right now. You know, I went to breakfast one time. And it was an NCMA breakfast at Wright-Patterson. And a young lieutenant was there. And as we were getting ready to start, I was just making small talk with this lieutenant. And I was the FICA commander at the time, so I wasn't uh, involved in the LCMC side. But I asked this lieutenant, I said, wait, where are you? What do you do? And the lieutenant responded, oh, sir, I, uh, I'm in the uh, MQ-9 system program office. And I asked him, I said, oh, how cool is that? I said, are we still doing 45 combat air patrols or CAPS? Mm-hmm. I, I think I just said CAPS. And he said, sir, CAPS? And I asked, I asked myself the question, well, maybe they changed the name of it. And so I explained one 24-hour period of coverage over a target area. Are we still doing that many? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know. I don't work in that part of the program. And I was scratching my head thinking, well, what pro- part of the program do you work? Mm-hmm. That's the end result. So anyway, I asked him, I said, so what part of the program do you work in? He said, oh, sir, I'm in modernization. I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, have we integrated JDAM on the MQ-9 yet? And what about auto takeoff and land? I know we were resisting that. Did we ever put that on MQ-9? And he said this to me. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm just contracting. And I said to him, Lieutenant, have a seat. This just changed <laughs> from a casual conversation to a mentoring session. Right. And so I'm asking Air Force contracting to go with me on this thing uh, and to actually get involved and think about uh, how valuable your expertise in contracting is to the end result. No one else knows the details more than you about how to turn dollars into mission, but you have to understand that mission and you have to understand contracting. 
So what motivates you to lead Air Force contracting during this transformational time in government acquisition? So as I said before, it's really about my kids. I mean, it comes down to that. And I, I, um, I, I've approached everything in, in my career with having to understand the why for me. And I, I absolutely want to do everything I possibly can before I take off this uniform to lead Air Force contracting to change this game. And I believe Air Force contracting is the right catalyst to do it. I, I told the vice chief of staff this in his office. Um, I've told the undersecretary of the Air Force uh, this in his office. I think we're the right ones. Now, what I also tell our Air Force contracting folks, uh, and I'll tell you right up front very clearly, you are not going to get the credit. Mm -hmm. Please do not look to get the credit for anything that we come up with in terms of better ways to do business that get to um, results faster or better. Um, it'll be those PEOs we support. It'll be those wing commanders, those uh, MAGCOM commanders, and that's okay. But don't also underestimate the power of your knowledge. Um, it is a game changer, and I do want to get us off the sidelines to, to lead. Besides my kids, I will tell you, I'm very motivated and humbled by the opportunities the Air Force has given me over my career. For whatever reason, they've allowed me to sit in just about every seat you can sit in in contracting, and not just contracting. They've allowed me to get outside of contracting and do program management and requirements and even budget. You know, please don't tell anybody <laughs> I've done budget. But as I have gotten into those other areas and looked back at contracting, that's where I really understood how powerful our knowledge really is as a part of a broader team to get after fly, fight, and win. And so I'm ready to flip the script. I'm ready to, and, and I will tell you, our Air Force leaders are behind me on this. I want to flip the script from contracting being seen as some sort of bureaucracy or people that say no or people that are simply compliance oriented and really don't understand the missions they support. I'm ready to flip the script on that. And I know our people in Air Force contracting. I have sat with them. I've seen their glassy eyeballs. I've been all over the world and I've talked with them. When the vice chief early in my tenure called me to his office uh, because somebody said no, a contracting person apparently reportedly said no at some base, he asked me this question. He said, Cameron, how do we get the contracting workforce to be more innovative? And I absolutely stopped him in his tracks. Uh, and I told him, I said, Vice Chief, you don't have a more innovative group than Air Force Contracting. But we have given them, frankly, a bag of goo to, to sort through. And I'm ready to, to remove that. I'm ready to take the shackles off and to see what they can do. And by the time I had given him several examples uh, he was, first off, he was like, I think, regretting the fact that he invited me to his <laughs> office. But you know what? To his credit, what a fantastic leader he is. He said, I'm in. How do I help? And before I got back to my office, his speechwriter had sent me a note saying, tell me about mission-focused business leadership. The vice chief wants to talk about it. And I just feverishly wrote up three pages and sent it. And don't you know, in the next couple of weeks of the speeches that the vice chief gave everywhere, I got an email back from Dave Villareal out in, in Hawaii, and it was full of exclamation points, and he couldn't believe it. He said, mm -hmm. he said, sir, you won't believe this. The vice chief was just through here. 
And some operational squadron commander was complaining that contracting, you know, was not on board with something. The vice chief absolutely stopped him in his tracks and talked about how important the contracting career field is for, to find the solutions ahead. And he was in disbelief. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of leaders that we have. And that's where I'll end um, my answer is I, I, I have always been more lucky than good in my career. And the leadership that we have right now is absolutely perfect for the things that I have believed about Air Force contracting my whole career. And they are willing to stand behind us. Dr. Roper is absolutely 100% behind us and, and actually pushing me to go far, farther and faster. He tells me, Cameron, make me nervous. <laughs> and he is very supportive of our contracting workforce. Uh, and on up the chain. And next month, I'll have the opportunity to brief the top four on mission-focused business leadership. And I'm looking forward to telling our story. Uh, but I will tell you, our senior leaders do look at Air Force contracting in a new way. They look at us as catalysts for change and, and as innovators. Uh, and, that's, and, and that's what I've known about us all along. So I, pre I feel pretty blessed to uh, have the last few years of my career to lead Air Force contracting. Listeners, I urge you to stay tuned for the next episode of the Contracting Experience Podcast, where we continue our conversation with General Holt, and he addresses important questions from the field. 